Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. In this podcast, our guests will be discussing patient registries for Alzheimer's and dementia, and in particular, the Healthy Minds Registry, which is open to much of the public. According to the latest World Health Organization data, the estimated proportion of the general population aged 60 and over with dementia at any given time is between 5 and 8%. So at this rate, the total number of people with dementia is projected to reach 82 million in 2030 and 152 million in 2050. So we know the burden of dementia is real and growing, and just about everyone knows someone who is afflicted by some form of dementia. And new and improved treatments are desperately needed, yet to date, treatment studies have a pretty miserable track record. So what can we do to help? I am pleased to welcome our guest host, Dr. Julie Adams, psychiatrist and regional medical officer for PPD Biotech. And um, with that, um, Julie, welcome, and I'm going to hand it over to you to welcome our guest. Thank you, Valerie. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, I am happy to welcome as well to our podcast Dr. Clive Ballard of Exeter University and Dr. Heather Bryson of Synexus Healthy Minds Registry uh, to talk about this important uh, medical situation that we're facing and, and what we can do with registries uh, to help uh, move science forward. Uh, before we get into that, though, Dr. Ballard, I wonder if you would give us a little background uh, on yourself and, and how you came to be involved in Alzheimer's disease and registries. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm a psychiatrist by training. Uh, what interested me initially was my, my own family background and uh, particular risk of vascular dementia in my family, which uh, made this an attractive sort of option in terms of a research career and something that was personally important to me. Uh, I worked for uh, 15 years at King's College London as professor of age-related diseases, where I uh, ran a major dementia program, in clinical, including clinical trials and was also director of uh, research at the Alzheimer's Society in the UK, and then moved to Exeter University three years ago as dean of the medical school and have continued a, a very active involvement in dementia research. Wonderful. Thank you. And Dr. Bryson, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I have a scientific background. I've spent 15 years working in the pharmaceutical industry and a further five years in CRO industry, contract research organizations. A large proportion of my career has involved designing and conducting clinical trials aimed at assessing the safety and efficacy of new treatments for Alzheimer's. It's great to see that we've increased our knowledge and understanding in this space um, over time, and I'm excited now to be involved in finding solutions to facilitate clinical trial recruitment and further advance our knowledge in this field. Thank you. Um, Dr. Ballard Clive, if I may, uh, you have a significant background um, in this space specifically, so you would be a good one to give us sort of a context around what have been the major challenges um, facing uh, developers of Alzheimer's therapies and, and maybe also what have been some of the um, you know, recent breakthroughs of knowledge and advancement in this field. Thank you. I think that's an important context because it's not just about new therapies. It's also about improved diagnosis. Um, it's about better prevention uh, as well as identifying new therapies. And I think we've done very well recently with identifying some of the main risk factors, uh, beginning to sort of be able to roll those out into public health initiatives to help people live healthier, 
um, to manage medical risks in midlife that might contribute to later life dementia, such as high blood pressure and high cholesterol, for example. So I think there have been some very good success stories. Um, but nevertheless, it's 20 years since we have the, the last new licensed therapy for people with Alzheimer's disease, uh, cholinesterase inhibitor drugs like um, dinepazil, Aricet, which gives some symptomatic improvements, but which don't affect the underlying disease. Uh, and, you know, despite all of our best efforts, we've not been able to identify uh, a, an effective disease-modifying therapy that really changes the course of the disease and the lives of people with Alzheimer's disease. And I think there's lots of factors behind that. Some of that is identifying, you know, the right therapies, the right targets for those therapies in the brain. Um, some of that is about can we identify people before they develop the, the disease because often these things are more likely to be effective at an earlier stage. But I think it's also been a little bit about the sort of medical culture and the small number of people that have been encouraged to take part in clinical trials and that clinical services aren't, often aren't very set up in order to uh, in, enable people to take part in clinical trials. And if we contrast that to, to cancer, for example, where um, you know, about one in two people who go to clinical services in needing treatment for cancer are offered participation in clinical trials. You know, that's had an enormous uh, effect on driving forward progress, giving people better outcomes, but also developing new therapies. And we, we need to really bring the same ethos uh, to Alzheimer trials. And I think some of the initiatives that we're thinking about and talking about like better registries, better ways of linking clinicians and, and people with Alzheimer's disease and at risk of Alzheimer's disease to those registries is really the way forward. So get into a little bit of specifics around that. So you, you talked about um, the need for, for identifying the right targets, the right therapies, the right patients at the right stage in their illness, and then accessing those patients. Uh, those are a lot of, of big asks. How How do registries support each of those? Well, I think that uh, I think registries can help in a number of ways. Uh, one particular way is people who either have uh, mild cognitive impairment or early problems with their, with their memory, or even just people in the general population of midlife or, or later life who may be at risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. You know, people with early memory symptoms, they're unlikely to be in contact with clinical services, certainly not specialist services, but often not even their primary care physician. Um, so those individuals aren't currently being identified in any way, shape or form so that, that we don't know who those individuals are. We're not linking them into clinical trials. So there's a huge opportunity to, to, you know, to create uh, better platforms for those individuals to be linked into trials they might benefit from, but will also take forward the field. I think we're also increasingly uh, looking at opportunities for, for what's called precision medicine, uh, identifying people based on risk factors. Um, those could be risk factors such as medical risk factors or lifestyle risk factors, but also genetic factors. And one of the main genes that's a, a risk gene for people developing Alzheimer's disease is called um, ApoE4. Uh, and, you know, we're increasingly beginning to see trials that are looking at treating people with those risk genes to see if we can prevent the development of Alzheimer's disease. But those individuals are difficult to identify unless you have a registry and unless you have a registry where the genetic information is available. So, again, there's huge opportunities to, to really streamline that uh, and make those trials practical, uh, deliverable, and give people opportunities to take part in them. 
Dr. Bryson, I, I understand that your career, uh, as you described it, encompasses a fair amount of pharmaceutical research, um, as well as working in the CRO industry. Um, you've uh, brought a lot of this um, past experience to your new role at Synexis Healthy Minds Registry. Um, can you speak to just a little bit about that registry? Who are who are we seeking to capture? Who are you seeking to capture in that registry? And 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 are are any of these data that Dr. Ballard is uh, speaking to um, to be found in the Healthy Minds Registry? Are, are these some of the same challenges that you there at Synexis are are trying to solve for? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, this is a collaboration between um, ourselves at Synexus setting up this Healthy Minds Registry and the University of Exeter. Um, and what we're trying to do here is enroll 30,000 individuals aged 50 and above with no diagnosis of Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. And essentially, we'll collect information around general medical history as well as lifestyle questionnaires and, and cognitive batteries all done online and the goal of the collaboration is to help us understand how healthy brains age so we can identify ways to prevent cognitive decline as well as Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia but also provide access to a pool of clinical trial participants to help facilitate recruitment to clinical trials. And now it's been a lot more than just about recruitment into clinical trials, is, is my understanding as well. Um, Clive, has that uh, your your interest in registries goes beyond, um, you know, finding and recruiting the right patients? Uh, what else uh, have you been able to find in in your um, registry experience? Well, currently we we have a, a registry called Protect in the UK, which is run on exactly the same principles. And the idea is the Healthy um, the Minds Registry would would mirror some of the learning from that registry and make it available to people in the US. Um, in the UK, we follow up people every year, so we've learned a lot about some of the risk factors, some of the things that might be associated with risk of, of progression of impairment, such as um, low mood, for example, has, has been an important risk factor. Um, pain has been something that's come out as an important risk factor, hearing loss. So we're beginning to learn about those things. Uh, we've also been able to show that, that some, some aspects of brain training have actually been quite effective in, in helping maintain people's thinking and cognitive health. So, uh, so whilst you know, part of what we want to do as a registry is give the opportunities for people to take part in, in clinical trials, um, I think there's also been a lot of other learning. And importantly, I think these, a really good registry is a partnership between the participants and the organizations running the trials. So yes, we want to um, take forward sort of clinical trials, but we also want to do things that are interesting for people to take part in that are rewarding and give back people kind of information and the opportunity to do you know, a range of things that are potentially interesting and beneficial. So it's, we're getting a lot of information out of these registries. It sounds like the participants themselves have, have the opportunity to gain something from the registry. Uh, what challenges have there been to building or, or growing the registry? And, and speak a little bit more about um, those uh, efforts that are being made to, to support participants in the registry and to really engage them? I guess one well, comment I would make is, sorry, Clive. No, go ahead, Heather. Yeah, I guess one thing I was going to say is just 
in terms of the, the registry itself, it, it serves as a means of finding individuals who aren't necessarily seeing specialists or even GPs, as Clive mentioned earlier. So we provide access to this population to improve our understanding of how we can recruit to clinical trials. But at the same time, we have to offer something that retains people's interest by giving them information about forthcoming clinical trials, about breakthroughs in the area. Also access in the Healthy Minds Registry, we give them access to the free brain training games. Um, so they, they can access these online at any time as they participate in the registry. And Clive, did you want uh, to add to that? Yeah, and I think that's a lot about when we, we initially set up the UK registry about four years ago, we did a lot of talking to our participants, um, you know, the kind of things they wanted to see out of the registry, what made it engaging, what, you know, what made it something that was exciting for them to participate in. And I think that, you know, information about break, uh, breaking news studies and trials, um, that was something that was very important to people, but also the opportunity to do more things, to take part in a range of research studies, um, not just clinical trials, but but um, other things that are that are gaining new information about potential risk factors, or information about sort of things like mental health as well as as well as cognitive health. So I think it's that kind of breadth of opportunity, the feedback, um, that's actually worked really well. And I think, you know, the unique thing about the registry in the UK compared to sort of other similar registries is how well engaged participants have been. More than 90% of the people are still taking part in it actively after four years, which, is, you know, which has been fantastic as a, as a research vehicle, but I think also attests to the fact that it works really well as a partnership and it really gives the participants something positive as well. So they, the participants are getting quite a lot out of this as well. They're getting information about um, new developments in the field, potential um, research studies to participate in, and indeed, we've we've spoken about registries being a source of those study participants. Uh, they also get some brain training opportunities um, that are evidence-based. Uh, will all of what they get out of this in any way deter drug developers from wanting to use registries if, if they feel that subjects uh, might be getting cognitive training that could be confounding to their endpoints or, uh, you know, news flashes about a competing study. I'll let Clive comment a bit more about the cognitive testing, et cetera. I don't think in, in our experience that this is something that, that puts people off other studies. Um, and certainly we're also careful for individuals that sign up to the Healthy Minds Registry. If they're interested in participating in clinical trials, we ask them about that. And then if they do end up participating in any kind of trial, we, we flag their record so that we don't keep coming back to them and pestering them when they're already involved in that way. And I think to add to that in terms of you know the interest and enthusiasm, I think rather than people just being interested about one specific therapy. I think if there's a, an emerging therapy that's beginning to look interesting, it increases people's enthusiasm more generally for, for different trials and a range of potential treatments. So I think it has a, you know, a positive spin-on uh, effect. In terms of the, the brain training, I think you know, that this is a relatively modest benefit, but we've shown in clinical trials that it does give benefit. So I think it's an, an evidence-based product that we're able to offer people free as part of the registry, which I think is important. 
But it's also important that it is a relatively modest benefit, and it's aligned with what people do in their everyday lives. You know, we know that a lot of people do other brain training games. They do crosswords. They do Sudoku. They do a variety of things to try and keep their brain active. So it's really just a way of kind of, of, of offering a sort of evidence-based version of what people are doing anyway in their everyday lives. Well, that's, that's good news because we certainly want to keep them engaged, and it sounds like you, um, with your PROTECT registry, you've been able to keep them engaged for um, quite a long period of time, up to four years, which is fantastic. Uh, that also offers the opportunity for a lot of, of data collection over that time period. So um, I wonder if you could each tell, tell us a bit about what, what type of data are being collected in the PROTECT and the Healthy Minds registry and, and, and speak a little bit to the quality of those data that are being collected. Well, core, the core of the data collection is probably computerized neuropsychology assessments, and these are very good quality, um, very well-validated assessments. Uh, one of the, the big advantages of, of, of computerized neuropsychology is that um, it's, it's produced in exactly the same format every time, so you don't have inconsistencies in the way the test is administered. Um, you can make sure that it's delivered at exactly the same time, um, exactly the same information, uh, and also you can measure speed as well as, as well as accuracy with most of the tests. So this gives you a very sort of sensitive measure of any changes in, in cognitive performance. So I think that's a real strength of the, of the data collection of, of, um, of the registry. Uh, we also have very good quality mental health data, um, drug data, and um, overall health data is, is, is self-reported, but it's pretty, it's pretty good. And I think moving forward, we're going to want to link it a little bit more to primary care records just to, to completely sort of uh, improve the quality of the, of the medical and health information. So I think it's, it's evolving. I think it's pretty good quality. And I think particularly the neuropsychology, the mental health data and the information about current drugs you know, is, a, is, a, is, a real, is a real strength of the registry and has already helped us to you know, to identify many things about the rates of progression of some of the impairments, the risk factors that, that are leading to that, uh, and already to be able to evaluate clinical trials of things like brain training. And Heather, with the Healthy Minds Registry mirroring that PROTECT um, registry, are these the same type or similar type of data that you are collecting uh, in the U.S. version? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. As you say, we've mirrored this on the, the UK platform, so we will be collecting similar data. And I think importantly as well, similar to the UK, we will be following people um, up to at least five years. Wonderful. And any plans to take this global outside of the UK or the US? Well, we already have kind of uh, arrangements in Norway, and the platform will be launched in Norway later in the year, and we have a, a demonstrator platform in Hong Kong. So I think, you know, hopefully uh, it's been a successful platform so far, and uh, if, it, if the U.S. platform and the platforms in Norway and Hong Kong are also successful, then we would very much hope this could become a global initiative. Excellent. And, and how do you foresee researchers and drug developers using these data? I, I think you have named a few examples of how, how you have used some of these data, Clive, um, but any, any um, other thoughts on how these data might be used in the future, and particularly uh, by drug developers? No, absolutely. Well, I, 
I suppose one sort of key element is identifying people for the right clinical trials. You know, people at early stages of cognitive impairment or with specific risk factors or specific genetic factors. So that's one key area. But I think beyond that, I think it can also give a lot of information about um, trial inclusion criteria, trial designs. Um, if we're wanting, for example, to focus on people with early cognitive impairment, how should we define that in the best way to capture the group that we're really interested in, to capture a group that's perhaps at risk of decline over the time period of the trial? Uh, we're able to look at the different neuropsychology and other outcome measures we have to work out what are going to be the best endpoints for that trial. Um, we can run sort of virtual trials and simulations on the platform to to further enhance that type that type of data. Um, so I think there's a there's a kind of a number of things we can do, not just to specifically enable recruitment for trials, but also to inform the the kind of design, the entry criteria, the length of trials, the outcome measures. So hopefully able to offer a, you know a really useful and, and comprehensive support service uh, for researchers and drug developers. That's great, and 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 likely that type of inf this type of information that you're describing would would. Um, potentially have impacted some of the uh, challenges that past studies have encountered. Um, you know, talking about identifying the right IE criteria, um, the right uh, study design, the right endpoints for for um, the trials. Uh, some of these were were perhaps where past failures would have benefited. Um, is that your anticipation that the type of data these registries support uh, will get us to a, an answer and, and hopefully a positive answer faster in the future? I think that's really important, actually. I think that's a great point. I mean, if we look at some of the early trials in mild cognitive impairment, for example, um, the conversion rates of people from mild cognitive impairment to Alzheimer's disease have been much lower than predicted. The rates of decline haven't been as rapid as predicted. And that's probably because of unintended consequences of slightly changing entry criteria. Uh, and I think the big advantage of this is that we can, we can run those kind of simulations based on very specific criteria that we have within the registry. So we'll be able to predict much more accurately, you know, the rates of decline in it, it, depending on different entry criteria and which group of people we want to focus on. And I think that will inform, you know, the trial designs, the power, all of those things much more effectively and hopefully sort of avoid repeating some of the errors of the past. So we've been talking about the PROTECT registry in the UK and the Healthy Minds registry that mirrors it uh, in the US and plans to take this global, this same platform global. Um, can you talk about, uh, you know, how does this compare or contrast with other registries uh, that may be out there um, uh, and um, where they may have succeeded or, or where they may be improved and, and how those experiences might have informed the development of these platforms? Well, I think it's been widely acknowledged that because of the difficulty of identifying participants for trials that registries are a great way forward. Um, and I think most examples so far haven't been particularly successful. And in a way, it seems to have been quite polarized. It either seems to have been very large registries, but which include very little information about individuals. So it doesn't allow um, particular trial protocols to be matched to particular individuals to enable recruitment in, a, in an efficient way and doesn't collect very much data to 
address some of the other issues we've been talking about, such you know, around trial design. At the other extreme, we've got um, cohorts that have very, very uh, assessed in a great deal of detail, but are relatively small numbers of participants. And again, that so far hasn't proven to be a way of really substantially increasing the number of people participating in trials. So I think what's, what we're hopefully able to do with Protect and Healthy Minds is, is fill in that sort of really important gap in the middle where we collect a large enough cohort to be useful, collect detailed enough information to enable people to be matched to trials and answer uh, design issues. But the other thing that's critical is the high level of engagement because many of the platforms have also lost a lot of their participants very quickly because apps don't offer people enough things to do and, and people don't remain engaged. So I think it's, the, it's perhaps the engagement, the level of information that we have um, and the size of the cohort and it's triangulating those three things that really makes a registry useful and perhaps uh, enables it to then start addressing some of those key issues. Well, this just, it sounds like this has been a really successful collaboration in, in uh, thinking through and addressing uh, some of uh, the key uh, challenges other registries have faced as well as the key challenges that uh, drug development in this space is is facing generally. Um, you know, Heather, you are coming from uh, a large corporation in the drug development industry, and Clive, you are coming from a public university. Uh, how, just briefly, how did this collaboration come to be, and, and what do you see as a successful path forward in terms of, of ongoing collaboration between your organizations or, or what the, the industry and the field uh, would benefit from in terms of collaboration in the future? I mean, I think this type of collaboration we're increasingly seeing. I think the, you know, I think academic institutions are increasingly seeing the importance of commercial collaborations, and I think commercial organisations are increasingly seeing the value that you know academic organisations can bring. And I think we're in that kind of rich interface of those spaces. And I hope this has been quite an innovative collaboration. It's, you know, it's been something that we've been discussing over a period of a few years, and and kind of moved to this. Point. And I think it's a really, you know, good example of how you can bring those two worlds together in the most effective way to, to focus on the on the right questions and the and the right issues, you know, and drive it forward with the right milestones and things to bring it into being in a, you know, in a in a substantive way, uh, in a timely fashion, so that it's available for people quickly. Yeah, I would agree, Clive. I mean, I, I think this has been a really good collaboration to date. And as you say, it, it's certainly not unique. And I think we recognize that our organizations bring different things to the table. And hopefully together we can help advance the field, advance knowledge, and encourage more companies to continue with research because we can make their lives easier in terms of the recruitment piece as well as understanding you know where these patients where we can find these patients targeting the right patients to the right protocol and helping in the design of those studies through the longitudinal data that we collect and i think by combining those two things and making it you know achieving com commercial clinical trial sort of objectives as well as academic objectives, I think it end, the end result is a, is a really rich platform that's really good for the participants as well as for the research objectives. I would agree with that completely. It, it's, it sounds like it's just been a fantastic collaboration, and I look forward to seeing many great things come out of, come out of this. 
partnership. And I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk with me today. And I'm going to hand things back over to Valerie to wrap it up for us. Julie, thank you. Thank you so much. So if you're age 50 or older, have access to the Internet, have not been diagnosed with dementia, and live in the United States, you can register for the Healthy Minds Registry and help aid and make a difference in the research for dementia. And the website is synexushmr.com. It's S-Y-N-E-X-U-S-H-M-R.com, synexushmr.com. And um, Dr. Ballard had uh, referred to the uh, PROTECT study, and that is uh, for those folks in the UK who would be interested in registering for that study, protectstudy.org.uk. Again, protectstudy.org.uk. And from what I can see from both websites, um, the study is it's easy, it's free, and it's done entirely online. So thanks, everyone. Really great conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Thank you.